Support for Yagni is provided by Flipper Cloud. Are big launches stressing you out? Then you need feature flags. Flipper Cloud helps your team deploy the code now and then roll out features when you're good and ready. Get started for free at FlipperCloud.io. Today, I'm joined by Trevor Turk, co-founder of Hello Weather and previously an engineer at If This Then That, Clearbit, and Basecamp. Trevor almost quit programming when he was asked to do a left adder join. GraphQL burst onto the scene as the ultimate REST API killer. Now that the dust has settled, did it live up to the hype or is this just another case of cargo culting Facebook? We discuss whether or not you need GraphQL and also touch on what format our AI overlords would most prefer, why N plus ones are fine actually, and a bonus spicy take on snapshot testing with VCR. Welcome to Yagni. So I think we're going to talk today about GraphQL, and we're going to try to answer the question of, do we need it? So before recording, I fired off a little snarky tweet that is, GraphQL, do we need to rewrite every API because in 2012, Facebook's mobile app was really slow? And the backstory there is that is like where GraphQL which is sort of an alternative to writing a REST API came from. On YouTube, there's a, a GraphQL documentary. It was not on Netflix, which was surprising considering I'm sure Netflix uses GraphQL. What I was able to learn from this documentary was that HTML5 was the worst decision in Facebook's history, according to Mark Zuckerberg. If you recall how slow cell connections and phones were in 2012, Basically, Facebook's mobile app was incredibly slow and everybody hated it. So what happened was some people made a prototype of a tool that would later become GraphQL. And the idea was that it was much more efficient for their native mobile apps who had to query all this like nested, interconnected, hierarchical like feed data for the Facebook news feed. Do you recall like how you first came across GraphQL? Yeah, so I took a job at If This Then That, IFT, which is an old San Francisco startup. And they had a, probably still do have a large, not particularly majestic monolith Rails app that had been going through some growing pains. They were trying to make some product changes. And they were in the middle of sort of kind of a big rewrite, at least of how they presented everything to like their users. So they wanted a new iPhone app, a new Android app, and a new website. And when I joined, they were kind of in the middle of building out the new apps and, and website. And someone who was there before me had started a GraphQL API, but hadn't really gotten terribly far in building it out. But the foundation was there. And it was the first time I had actually seen GraphQL or, or used it, which was using the GraphQL Ruby gem. And I immediately loved it. I totally fell in love. I thought this is like the best thing since Rails and started building it out. And what I really liked about it was that each of the fields that you had was sort of its own little uh, self-contained unit. It's like easier to reason about and easier to test. And essentially, since they were trying to make so many changes and they had a vision about where they wanted to take the product. It was like a chance to put kind of a firewall between the old app, like the real Rails app, and the new user interfaces. 
So essentially, I just kind of like gradually built out more and more fields into the GraphQL API to the point where the mobile developers could start using it. And then that's when I really fell in love because essentially they would just tell me what stuff was missing, put in like a static field so they could start doing their designs and stuff. And then I would go back and make the field work for real. And it just worked so well. It was like big startup kind of place, but like really small development team. I think we had like one or two iPhone and Android developers. It was like fewer than five app developers, like a team of three or four people working on the website. So we really had to move quickly. And I thought the GraphQL API was just like the best thing I'd seen in a long while in tech. It just let me build this like little world and everybody could just use it. If you use one of those tools like Graphical, GraphIQL, you get a little website where you can sort of browse the documentation or browse the fields. So it's like automatically documented for the app developers. It was a dream. And if you looked compared to the old REST API that they had, I don't want to touch those. I don't want to break that. Who knows who's relying on that? So it was like a little bit of like ability to have like greenfield development, I think is a little bit of a cheat. But I think being able to sort of build out like one big data model instead of stringing together a million different APIs for every individual screen that any mobile app could come up with, it was just sort of like building up like one world that they could then use without bothering me, honestly. I think I talked to the iPhone developer one time. He was like, how do I hit the GraphQL API? And I showed him like a curl example and I showed him graphical and... I don't think we hardly had to interface. It was, uh, I mean, he was a nice guy, don't get me wrong, but it was like, here, you can basically figure it out. And if something's missing, just let me know. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting, I think, when people talk about GraphQL, because one of the big things that I do here is like the front end team, like, doesn't have to talk to the back end team or like doesn't, have, not that they don't have to talk to them, but like that they're not so reliant on them. But I kind of wonder if that's a good thing or if that's like an organizational breakdown. I don't know. And it doesn't sound like in your experience, it was where I empathize with these struggles on one of the biggest projects I worked on where it's like teams of teams and there's 20 people that are writing the platform and 20 people that are like writing this other thing. And it's just hard to coordinate everybody. But it sounds like in your case, even when it was just a couple people on each team, it felt like that was like sort of a good way to separate it or like it was like a virtue that you weren't holding up the front end teams. The way that I'm thinking about it is more like we used to have to ask a DBA for like permission to change the database or maybe allow us to write some query that was too complex or you would have to reach out to this like expert. And with the GraphQL, what I think I really liked about it was that like self-serve nature. So once I build out this new sort of domain model that all of the apps and, and websites and everything can use then they're empowered. They can make with it whatever they want. Another thing that just to be, give you sort of the caveats too, I did find we ran into some of those problems like with N plus ones and really complicated, like the Android home screen when you first logged in was loading so much stuff. When the CEO of the company loaded up his account, it was like crashed or just timed out or whatever. Is that more due to the amount of data or like the nesting? With the REST API, it seems like you kind of have 
more guardrails of you hit this endpoint and you kind of know like how bad it could possibly be and like you could have pagination and stuff but with graphql you can kind of nest and i know this isn't how you're supposed to do it and you can write bad api calls in all formats but kind of the meme around graphql is you could just keep nesting 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 and suddenly you're like 50 levels deep and you generate a query that's going to take 13 hours to run and your denial of servicing your own endpoint That's exactly what happened in this case. It was just, it was loading so much stuff. And I don't know, he had been using if since he built it and he had who knows how many applets and it was just a crazy page load. So it was basically the Android developer had to do too much work to actually string together everything that he needed. And it turned out to be worse than a REST endpoint. So this is like, Advice that I would give to people using GraphQL, which if you're uh, pro REST and anti-GraphQL, this is right up your alley. <laughs> but one thing you can do with GraphQL that you might not think of is you can just return loose JSON. So what we did was just make special purpose fields that were essentially REST endpoints. I made a field called Android Homepage V1 or whatever and loaded up. This is kind of what I'm saying, like, you would normally do this with the REST API, but his problems wouldn't have been solved if I made the REST APIs. I would have had to probably make some kind of custom REST endpoint called home or something and would have done the exact same work. But people don't think of it, but with GraphQL, you can build your own escape hatch and just return a JSON blob that's special purpose for a particular app screen or whatever. And that's what I did in this case was let me just sidestep all of these problems that we have, build you out the exact JSON object that you wish you had, just like it was a bespoke REST endpoint, and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, because there was kind of like a middle ground at some point in the history of like mobile and API development that was called backend for front end, right? BFF. So that was kind of like instead of a REST API that's centered around resources make your own sort of pseudo resources that represent like each screen. So you could have a REST endpoint that's slash API slash Android slash settings, and that would return potentially some aggregated data. It is interesting. That seems to be what the mobile app developers want from a complexity and like performance standpoint. But the GraphQL examples, it's back to that like kind of resourceful view of things where it's like model your data and then like you can arbitrarily request different nodes and edges from this graph. Yeah, I don't think I've seen, at least in the the documentation, something like that where you would make a field that is more like a backend for front end. I don't even know what you would call it, like a projection or something, like a data projection. I think of it as like a bespoke field or something. But I think of it as like cheating and basically stuffing a REST endpoint into your GraphQL API. But it's like a very effective GraphQL hacks that work terrific for me. And it's funny you talk about the back end for front end, because when I got there, they had spiked out the GraphQL at IFT. They had spiked out the GraphQL at API, started using it, and then actually chosen to do a back end for front end pattern instead. And what that meant is we eventually scrapped that. I was driven like mad by it because what you had was like a node app that would talk to the old API endpoints in the old Rails app 
And then the clients, the iPhone app or whatever, would have to talk to this Node app. And if you wanted to make a change, it was just so hard to do. It's like the same problem that you have with like microservices. And even on a small team, I got to fix the Rails app and change this API or make a new one or whatever. Then I have to deploy that. Then I have to open up the Node app and hook up all this new stuff to talk to that. And one of the things that was really nice about the GraphQL world is you can just execute. It's sort of like you can use it in unit tests. You have the schema and you can hit individual fields with a given context. And it sort of lets you like unit test the whole thing. So if you ever have any problems, basically just like you can just add, you fix an individual field or you just add new fields however you see fit. And it's one change, you deploy it and you're done. And unless you're changing a field, you really don't ever have to worry about like breaking things on your clients. And then add on top of that, the GraphQL deprecations. So you can say, stop using this field. This is no good. We want to change something else. And you can also do instrumentation is another feature. So you can very easily see if anybody is still requesting that particular field. So you can remove it. You can be sure that nobody's using it. If you, know, you just add instrumentation and ping Datadog or whatever. So we were able to like very easily deprecate and then remove fields, which was super handy. Cool. Yeah, I think that is interesting. I think like the BFF, it's interesting that kind of went away. I guess I always saw an advantage to GraphQL was like, if you have tons and tons of clients, and I guess in practice, I'm wondering like how many companies end up having more clients than N of two of Android and iOS app. Like I can understand like Netflix is like, we need to run on like every possible TV operating system. And we have separate experiences on tablets, the phone apps, and you tech on the website. I guess I'm kind of surprised that the backend for front end didn't take off and instead GraphQL took off. It feels like backend for front end would be good for N of two multiple clients and GraphQL is better for like unbounded number of clients, but I don't feel like many people have unbounded number of clients. I feel like the advertised benefits of GraphQL are not what I like about it. What I don't like about the backend for front end is the same thing I don't like about microservices. It's just another thing that you have to coordinate and maintain. Honestly, I make REST APIs all the time. Don't get me wrong. I like REST APIs just fine. but there is something really straightforward about having a GraphQL API where it feels like one place where you can build out like an entire domain and have everything make sense together. Really, whether or not you have multiple clients. Maybe another way to, to think about the multiple client thing is more like how many screens there are out in the world. So you could just make a REST API. If it's one thing, you're showing five, 10 screens or whatever, but it's across a thousand clients, then fine, right? Then it's a little bit more work for the client to figure out exactly what fields to fetch and blah, blah, blah. You have to write this really long thing. There's something nice about just saying, here's the endpoint you hit and it gives you back everything you could need. But if you have a more complicated app, then I think you can tip over into where it's worthwhile to have that flexibility. So you don't have to make like custom endpoints for each thousand screens that you're building. Do you think people are good at thinking about things in terms of a graph? A lot of the terminology I see in GraphQL is around nodes and edges. And 
for me, that has always been not how like my brain naturally thinks about things. I would say I just ignore that part of GraphQL. I don't like nodes and edges and connections and cursor pagination. I'm sure that there's good reasons for those things. And I suppose if you are trying to sort of automatically hook up to Apollo or I don't know, whatever those other options are, it might make sense. But me personally, I just ignored that stuff. I never used nodes or edges, I don't think. (laughs) It is interesting. And it's in the name, GraphQL. If you didn't know that it was sort of this API tool, you might think that it is like a query language for a graph database or something. And it's not, right? Right. I mean, I'm not even that big on the... I'm looking at the GraphQL marketing homepage. Most of this stuff I don't really care about. And especially the weird pagination stuff. I guess maybe part of the problem is if you get to work with the technology, then you're sort of encouraged to use all of their best practices and fully buy into their whole ethos. Right. If you're going to use the tool, you must use it in this way. Otherwise, you're not using the tool correctly. So then if you run into problems, it's because you're not using it correctly, not that the tool has a problem. Yeah. I mean, best practices make sense. I'm sure there's good reason for nodes and edges and whatever to be in their best practices. But in my use cases, I haven't seen any need for that. And I found it all to be like tedious, I guess is the right word. You have to keep selecting more. You're going down like an additional nesting layer for no reason. Yeah. I'm guessing it is just an artifact of coming out of Facebook specifically for optimizing for the newsfeed where Facebook itself is probably more graph-based than most applications. When you think about each person is kind of like a node and there's multiple connections across them and things like that. So how do we know that GraphQL isn't like a fad that's going to go away in five years and we will have built these APIs that no one can consume anymore? I think back to something when I was first getting started in programming, which was like the NoSQL sort of hype cycle. And if I can remember, there was like kind of four big technologies and two of them sort of stuck around and two of them I don't think anybody really uses. So back in the early 2010s, there was like MongoDB, Redis. Those are the two that kind of have survived. But then at the same time, it was equally unclear whether like There was Neo4j, which was the actual graph database, and there was a lot of these social networking platforms that were trying to model their data in an actual graph database. And then there's this really weird one called React. I think it was a ring-based database. I'm just thinking back to like me as like year like zero through three in the industry. And it's like, all right, these are all the cool new technologies that are coming out. Some of them have stayed and are helpful. Some of them are complete relics of the past. How would you like think about GraphQL. Do you you have a take on that? GraphQL has kind of already gone through its hype cycle and settled into maybe more of what its steady state is going to be. And I think there's plenty of usage, like you've got GitHub and Shopify and Kickstarter and I'm looking at the GraphQL Ruby stuff. There's a lot of GraphQL Ruby users. 
There's a lot of investment still in dev tools that are working with GraphQL. I don't think it lived up to its hype. I would say that. Yeah, um, it didn't it become like, the default standard, right? Even some of the like shining examples of GitHub and Shopify, it's not that they replaced their REST APIs. It's they have the REST API and then the GraphQL API is almost like an extra add-on. I think that's the appropriate place for GraphQL is maybe it goes back to that like 80-20 rule where 80% of the time REST is going to be the best choice and 20% of the time GraphQL, if that, honestly. But I do see it as a little more broadly. I think GraphQL is going to continue to take a backseat to just like simple REST API endpoints and JSON responses. But I don't think it's going to die. Broadly, I think that it's most useful if you think of GraphQL as an add-on or like a DIY REST endpoint, if that makes sense. So if you're using GitHub, They've got all these REST API endpoints. They probably have everything that you need for building your GitHub integration or whatever. You're going to use those. But if you can't do a particular thing or you find it's really inefficient because you have to hit six endpoints to get all the data that you need to build a single screen, well, then you can switch over to GraphQL and you're not going to get GitHub to write you a custom REST endpoint with exactly the JSON that you want, right? GraphQL can be thought of as like an escape hatch from REST, where you basically get all the tools as a user, as a client that you might ever need. And the GraphQL API ideally keeps growing over time as those niche client needs surface. You can just add a new field or whatever is needed. And kind of like I was doing when I was first using GraphQL is just say to the client user, well, if the REST API doesn't do what you want, you can come over here and and basically do whatever you want. Yeah. It's interesting. The parallel that I'm reminded of in Rails is active record. So active record will do probably even more than 80, but I'd say 97% of the click querying that you want, but then you have the option to drop down to like raw SQL. And I think it's basically the same idea. You're just pushing it out of the private API, like into the public API. Yeah. And basically, to answer the broader question, I don't think GraphQL is going to die. I think it has plenty of valid use cases and plenty of active users and support from bigger companies. But I don't think it's ever going to be the dominant API tech. The world in which everybody was going to switch from REST to GraphQL, I don't think that's going to happen. Everybody switched from like SOAP or whatever to REST with JSON. Sure, that made, that made a lot of sense. But I don't think everybody's going to one day close all their REST APIs and switch over to GraphQL entirely. That's kind of my frustration with GraphQL. Not that I don't think it solves a problem. It's just that I think a lot of people in the, I'll just call it like programming like YouTube and like programming Twitter, people sort of do kind of imply that, yeah, that's what you should learn. Like the first thing you should learn if you want to build an API is GraphQL. And I can see some advantages to it, especially consuming. It does seem somewhat similar. But if we're saying that really GraphQL is kind of an extra add-on, I don't know. I just get a little worried at recommending that people learn like the more specific thing versus the general thing. And I think I found a comment on a thread and one of these blog posts about 
whether GraphQL was good or not. And I thought it was interesting. They said, when working on a REST API, you spend most of your time thinking about good API design and testing practices. When working with GraphQL, you spend most of your time figuring out how GraphQL ecosystem libraries work together. Yeah, my experience has been pretty positive when I reach for GraphQL, but it's not the first thing that I reach for. I'm mostly a Ruby on Rails developer. And if I'm thinking about somebody who's just getting started, the API, a RESTful API concept, just makes a lot more sense in terms of how Rails works, right? You're coming from like controller actions, and they have helpers where you can do like respond to with different formats. So it's almost like if you build out your Rails app in like the Rails-y way, Instead of returning HTML, you can use one of those respond to blocks to return JSON instead, right? And there's like JBuilder. I've been using RubyGem lately called Alba, which gives you like a nice DSL, like a class-based DSL for building JSON blobs. And that's just like more natural, I think, if you're like used to RESTful controllers anyways. And I think this is part of the reason where I don't expect... GraphQL is going to get pulled into Rails core because it really kind of stands alone. In a Rails app, you sort of make a different top-level folder, and then it's kind of its own. You make one controller that is sort of the entryway into your GraphQL schema, but the GraphQL code kind of lives apart from your Rails app, which is kind of like an odd thing. And that's another reason where I feel like if you're coming to this as like a new developer, I have a lot of experience with GraphQL, and I still wouldn't reach for it first before building out a normal RESTful API. Do you think that GraphQL is better because chat GPT can probably write blobs of GraphQL better than it can write multiple coordinating REST API calls? <laughs> I, suppose. I mean... Maybe if chat GPT can be taught to read a GraphQL schema, because GraphQL stuff is sort of self-documenting in that way, I bet you it'd be more usable. But you also have open API and Swagger standards for REST. So I feel like these AI tools are going to be able to understand both, probably. So if you believe in a future where programmers are just speaking in a chatbot, maybe we'll want to switch to a GraphQL future. Yeah, maybe. There's probably a lot more REST endpoints, though, so it's more valuable if it learns REST instead of GraphQL, I suppose. True, yeah. I've got a spicy take for you. I think the N plus one problem with GraphQL is solved. I think it's fine. I think we're okay. There's a million different data loaders, some projects that try and make it all magically automatic and if you're using Active Record, it's very straightforward to use GraphQL batch or something to avoid N plus ones. Combined with the ability to do like that max complexity and max depth stuff, I think it's harder. It's harder than REST stuff because it's not self-contained. Like you can test a REST endpoint, make sure it has no N plus ones, and you're sure that you're done. It's locked in, it's done. It's a little bit harder. But it's not really a problem. It's a hurdle that is fairly easy to jump over. I generally don't even think that N plus ones are that like insidious of a problem. Fairly easy to spot and diagnose when they become an issue. So 
Yeah, I think I can get behind that, that like, oh, if you use GraphQL, you're going to have N plus ones. Therefore, it's a non-starter. I think that's not a good reason. Another thing I wanted to bring up, I think it's oversold about the request exactly the data you need. So the GraphQL homepage says, ask for what you need and get exactly that, which maybe was more of a concern in the early days when Facebook was making GraphQL and we we're on, I don't know if that was the same time we we're on like the edge network or whatever. And it really did matter how big the payload was. The best part about GraphQL is that you can request exactly what you need. It's also the worst part is that if you're trying to just fetch some data, you have to write this whole long blob. In my case, I'm using a GraphQL front end on top of weather data APIs. And there, actually specifying the exact fields that you want is really useful. And it's because you can reduce the amount of weather data that you're fetching from the weather data APIs, which often, like Darsky gives you one RESTful API you can hit and you get everything that you could ever want back. But a lot of the other weather data sources have like multiple different endpoints that you can hit. And each one of them is going to cost you money every time you hit it. So GraphQL is like perfect for that. Like if you don't need the more expensive to query data, it's very clear because you're being explicit about needing a data versus if it was just a generic REST endpoint, you might say, well, they might need that, so I better return it. Yes. And that's exactly where, for me, a lot of these weather data companies are like, old Java shops and stuff, which would, I think, be very well served having GraphQL APIs built on top of them because it's just a perfect use case. You're still using the same API endpoint. You can request exactly the data you want, and then you can avoid getting hit for requesting more data than you need because it's expensive. When Facebook made GraphQL, the idea that their cell phone wouldn't have to download more data than it needed, I think probably matters a lot less because cell technology is so much better than it was. But there's still a lot of value in not doing work on the back end that you don't have to. And there's this whole world of GraphQL schema stitching. And that was something that we did a lot at IFT was essentially the GraphQL API was built to be the canonical way to access any of the subsystems as well. So if you want to run a search query that's actually going to hit Elasticsearch directly or whatever, that's fine. You can still go through the same one endpoint and everything kind of like holistically makes sense together. Yeah, I think like GraphQL as like a hub or an API gateway is interesting if you reach the point where you have that complexity in your system or your organization where, yeah, it's, I want to just query this API. I don't want to know that it is some other service or I have to hit an Elasticsearch cluster or I can't actually just fetch this from a database. I have to go out to another third-party API. That does seem like a nice abstraction layer or like a seam from the front end to the back end. Yeah. And the GraphQL Ruby world and the way that Ruby has been moving to have better support for fibers and non-blocking I.O., I think it makes it even more reasonable now to use Ruby as your GraphQL Ruby and use Ruby as your GraphQL API if you're doing this sort of like schema stitching work and hitting different services on the back end. If you sort of pay less to be waiting on network 
request to, to return a response, that's got a bright future. I feel like that's maybe the most interesting part of where GraphQL Ruby is going to be going in the next few years. One thing I think about with GraphQL is that I think it's impossible for a new standard specification to arise that has the ubiquity of the ones from like the web 2.0 days. Android and like iOS, they can't even have like full interoperability with like text messages at the moment. It feels like things like common formats for email or like RSS or even just HTTP in general are from like a different era. And if they were built right now, there would be competing versions from all of like the largest five tech companies and there'd be conferences and basically like the 2023 version of like a flame war around which spec are we going to use. So I think that makes it really difficult for the promise of GraphQL that it was going to like take over all of REST APIs to actually be realized. If it was getting to that point, it feels like there'd just be pushback from other parties that would want to have more control over it. And probably the best thing about REST APIs is that they're built on a lot of the basic HTTP principles that love them or hate them, they're not changing. And at least for now, they seem to be broadly working across all devices and programming languages. I think that's a fair point. And there are, in the same way that there are like database technologies that come and go, like the NoSQL movement stuff, probably REST APIs that return JSON in a sort of normal HTTP mode are not going to go anywhere and we're not going to displace them. I mean, if that was the dream of GraphQL, then that didn't happen. And I don't think it will. But I do think it's here to stay. It's like a well-established spec that has a lot of support in different languages and a lot of client tools. The whole ecosystem is sort of in place and I think working pretty well and still advancing. And I think it is going to survive. I think GraphQL is a survivor, but I don't think it's going to be a conqueror, I guess. I like that framing. Okay, I've got some spicy ones. I don't know if these will be interesting at all. So I'll just lay them on you. So developers tricked product managers into writing user stories because product managers had not built things themselves and they needed training wheels. So they basically said, hey, fill out this Mad Libs template so I know what it is you want. So if we take that further, front-end developers are seen as less skilled than back-end developers. So they need like the Fisher-Price, my first API tool so that the back-end team can do the heroic effort of quote-unquote real hardcore engineering. And so that's why GraphQL is appealing because it pushes a lot of the complexity of implementation off of front-end clients into the back-end team. I definitely don't think that front-end development is easier. I can't design anything no matter how hard I try. I'm the worst designer that's ever lived. I've done front-end work. I'm not good at that either. I think they're like two sides of the same coin where you're like, if you want to ship a product to somebody, you need the back-end and the front-end and the product developer. And the better all three of those are, the better the product is going to be. For me, GraphQL, it's not about making it simpler, dumbing it down, or making it like Fisher-Price, I think it's more like empowering. I think that when you give people, the front-end developers, access to this huge surface area of the sort of underlying application in an easily consumable way, 
in a self-documenting way, then they sort of have more flexibility and more power at their fingertips. It's kind of the same thing I was saying earlier about not needing to talk to a DBA to make database changes or something. We can write our own migrations and just deploy it. It's kind of like removing those roadblocks and hurdles because at most companies, you would probably have somebody who's more focused on the front end and more focused on the back end. I mean, of course, there are people who do both. And oftentimes, somebody on the front end would be nervous to come to the back end to make changes to the back end code. But if you have the GraphQL system in place, they really don't need to. But I would also say, like in my experience at If This and That, as time went on and we were settling on doing the GraphQL API, our Android developer never worked with Ruby before and came over and did backend work in the Ruby code, making his own GraphQL APIs that he wanted that interfaced with the search engine. And I reviewed the code and made some tweaks. It was his first time writing Ruby, I think. But the GraphQL Ruby setup that we had was so easy to reason about. And because all of the fields are sort of their own little isolated bits, he felt comfortable saying, I'm going to make a top-level field called like search that takes a query and it hits our Elasticsearch cluster or whatever. And he actually did the backend implementation himself. And that was an Android developer who hadn't done that work before. I think there's like a kind of a flippant knee-jerk response to GraphQL from some people that is like, so you're basically saying like we should write raw SQL in our mobile app and like query the database directly. And while I don't think anyone advocates for that, in this case, like I think it is interesting because by moving some of that stuff to the front end, it probably does make the backend feel more approachable to someone. If you're writing GraphQL queries, you're just becoming a little bit more familiar with schemas and how you structure data versus if you're just saying, here's this magic URL that I hit and I get back these fields, the mode of thinking is a little bit different. And so that's an interesting point that I don't think I've heard before that it probably does create more of a bridge for people moving to the backend because they're just more comfortable with maybe the intricacies of the data and the relationships. Whereas before, it's a little bit easier to ignore that. Yeah, totally. The interesting thing for me as part of thinking through this is I think for a lot of software, there is kind of like the user-centered design movement and that sort of prioritize the demands and the needs of actual users of your software. And I think that has sort of elevated the demands on the front end or like mobile applications. There's like the whole like mobile first movement and you and your team are working on making a company around an app. You're not making a company around technology and like one of the byproducts is that there's an app. And so I think this shift has like really prioritized the front end over the back end. And I think GraphQL is an interesting knock-on effect of that of instead of saying, well, this is how the back end APIs have to be designed because of best practices or convenience to implement, I think maybe a REST API is seen as maybe more straightforward to build. We're saying, well, that's not important. The important part is like the mobile app. And so whatever makes it easier for the mobile app, we're willing to take the cost elsewhere. And I think that's just like an interesting evolution of the software industry that's happened in like the past 15, 20 years is moving it away from there's like value inherently in this technology and the implementation is the interesting part to what are users able to 
customers? Like, what are they able to do with your product? And like putting that at the forefront and then saying, whatever we have to do, whatever bubblegum, shoestring, crazy concoction we have to get in the back to, to support that is worth doing instead of flipping it around. I think that the most valuable thing when you're building an app and you're trying to deliver something to customers is being able to move quickly, make changes, and have confidence that you're not going to break something. And if you take my first experience with GraphQL at If This and That, as we were fleshing out the GraphQL API and it was becoming full-featured, so over time it could do anything, the client apps like the Android app and the iPhone app, those are being built up at the same time. Those are being showed to the product development team and the designers and the heads of the company kind of people. And maybe they want to make changes. If the iPhone app developer can go to that meeting, and I don't even have to be there, and they can listen to what the designer says, go back to their computer, make the changes themselves, they're like empowered, they have the flexibility and the capability because of the GraphQL API. They don't have to ask me for anything. They don't have to interrupt me. They don't have to give me a to-do to change this thing in this REST API or make a whole new endpoint or something. It's empowering and lets those client apps move faster. Because like you said earlier, if you're working on an app, once you become comfortable working with the GraphQL API, and once you understand that you can look at GraphQL or whatever and introspect the schema and you kind of understand the domain model of the app, you're like one step closer to the actual backend code and you have all this extra capability and power, which lets you move faster, which lets you react to changing product requirements or business requirements with like less coordination. You don't have to ask me to do something or make a new endpoint in your BFF node app as well. There's no more backend work to do. Okay, well, I think we've reached that point where I ask the question, GraphQL, do we need it? Trevor, what is your take? I love GraphQL. I don't think it's going to beat REST, but I think it's going to be useful And I think it's going to be around for a long time. I think for me, I think my framing is going to end on a no, we don't need it because I just think the vast majority of apps probably don't benefit from it enough to justify the opinionated syntax and specialized tools. But I do think that if I were working in a large company, I would probably say, yes, we absolutely need this because... Even my one experience working with separate platform API teams that you need to coordinate with was just an absolute nightmare. So it's going to be a no asterisk for me. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I think VCR would be a good topic for a future episode in general. But I feel like it was like so good and so popular. And then very quickly, everyone's like, no, this is bad. We hate it. And so I'm always really interested by people that are like, no, like we know that there's like problems with this, but the benefit is like so good that you'll use it despite the drawbacks or complexity. I love VCR and I use it all the time, but I know that it's not perfect. I mean, there are plenty of problems with it. But for me, I'm not the kind of person where I want to like make a mocking stubbing system where I want to just test against the real 
thing. And you can just slap a VCR block around something. I mean, it's great, especially for weather data stuff. There'll be like weird bugs in the JSON that they give you where instead of an array, like AccuWeather's APIs, it does this a lot where it's you're expecting to get an array of data items. And instead of an array, you get back like true Boolean. I don't, I have no idea why. Yeah. But I also don't care if I can catch it. The way I think about it is if I see this exception pop up and it happens again when I test it myself, then I write a test, get that bad data in a VCR cassette, and then fix my application to handle it more gracefully. And then if down the road, if that VCR cassette, definitely have thrown away so many VCR cassettes. It's not necessarily that I need to keep that test forever and that VCR cassette forever. That's not really the point. I can delete that test. I just want to prove to myself that I fixed it. And then as long as that VCR cassette is valid, but if down the road I have to delete it, that's fine. I worked at a company a long time ago where they had switched all their testing over to Cucumber, all of it, because the CEO was just like obsessed with Cucumber. I'm thinking of this because you were talking about it in a previous episode. And it got to be so slow that it was unusable. So what we ended up doing was just put the whole test suite into a different directory that we weren't expected to run. I think this was like before CI stuff was really popular either. But like, you could do this where, you know, that whole directory has to pass on CI. We basically just moved it out of the way and then started a new test suite still in Cucumber because the CEO is still obsessed with Cucumber. And we just wrote the top 20 most critical path things. Like you can sign up, you can log in, you can go to this page, you can go to that page. And then started like with a new test suite and just assumed that if we broke things along the way, we would roll back and then add a regression test and then keep going that way. That's kind of how I feel about testing in general is like maybe people get too precious about preserving their entire test suite. Same thing that you were talking about with Git history is you don't need to necessarily have the entire Git history. It doesn't mean it's not valuable, but if you have to blow away your Git history at some point, like, oh, well. Yeah, it is really interesting. And what I talked with Justin Searles about was like a lot of the RSpec stuff grew out of a time when people were really valuing like the speed of tests running. And I feel like that has been solved in other ways of like Ruby and computers are just like faster now. And so there has been like a shift lately, I feel like in the Rails community back toward like system tests as like super high value. And it is interesting that VCR doesn't seem to have come along for the ride when it is actually like as close as you can get to testing against real APIs. You have to test like your parser layer of translating the JSON into Ruby objects. You have to test the network code basically. And that's something that I think would really be interesting to revisit now that some of the other virtues around why VCR was falling out of favor have kind of become non-issues. Yeah, I mean, I think VCR, it's got to be more useful when you're working with things out of your control. If you control all aspects and this is hitting that and you control the whole thing, then I think you're in a lot better place. But if you're working with like third-party APIs, yeah, I mean, I don't know, it just seems like I write a lot of tests, but I'm not like a testing zealot. And I feel like the simplest path, if you're working with an external service, the fastest thing to put together a test and prove it all works is using VCR. You just, sure, 
you know, save this response. You can make assertions against it. And if you want to delete that test later, oh, well. I've had a similar shift in my career of the number one thing about a test suite is like giving you confidence that like you didn't break something. And I think earlier versions of me cared more about like the aesthetics of the test suite or that the test suite was super quick to run or something. And it's, well, it doesn't really matter if it runs quickly, if it doesn't give you confidence and the high confidence is worth the slower feedback cycle. Yeah. Cause I've been dealing with that right now in our product. It's one of the big things is like connecting to HubSpot for this integration. And this is like a critical thing. And if something around clicking the like install from HubSpot button is broken, that's like a red flag emergency. But like, how do you test that without actually just like having a dummy app that's uninstalling and reinstalling every day? I think VCR is a good option for that of stubbing out the like OAuth responses. That's probably as close as we can reasonably get. If instead we just stubbed out like at the controller or just said, oh yeah, assume that we authenticated correctly. There's a whole chunk of like super critical code that is the most risky because we don't control the third party that is just not getting tested. And we're getting like false confidence, I think, that it works. So that has definitely given me pause and maybe I should reach for a tool like VCR or this case so that we could spec out what are the actual responses we would expect to get back from HubSpot and make sure that is always handled. And like you said, as stuff comes up, if there's a fire and something bad happens, let's make sure we catalog that, capture it in a cassette, and then hopefully never have that problem happen again. I think you're 100% right. The value of tests is that it increases your confidence. You want to feel like you can deploy. You've worked on some changes. You've merged pull requests forever. You feel like you want to deploy without worrying that you broke the whole thing. And if you're integrating with HubSpot or whatever, what could be a better test than capturing the exact response that they give you in an integration test or a system test and running through your whole application flow? If they change something, then you have to blow away the VCR cassette and write a new one. It would be the same thing if they changed something and you had this whole like complicated mocking stubbing thing. I feel like this is just coming from early days of being consultant or if you're a consulting company, it's like an artifact of your work that proves that you've done quality work is this test suite. That's valuable. Of course, I have a big test suite for all my apps too. But like the test suite's value, it's not as valuable as the app. It's a good signal that you've done a good job and that you have confidence to make changes. That stuff's all great. But people who treat the test suite as like as important or more important than the app and do all of this work to make sure that every single thing can be unit tested. I mean, in my apps, like usually I'm using integration tests or system tests and just run through common flows, make sure that sort of from a high level that everything works as I expect it. And if you can put VCR cassettes in the flow, that seems actually much better to me than building a whole mock or stub or whatever that's like simulating it. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think software is a craft movement especially in the Ruby community in the early 2010s was often driven by consulting companies. And then when you throw in sort of the like puritanical obedience to test-driven development and the virtues of having a nice test suite, it was almost like it was more important to have a nice test suite than like to have nice code. And it was more important to have nice code than to have anybody that like used the product or like the product was providing value. It was probably a, a symptom of maybe even if you go bigger, the economic climate that it was in of this was like the days of Groupon is like the next greatest company that is going to change the world. So I think especially with the current 
economic climate we're in, I think these ideas will be resonating a lot more with people as people stop realizing that having an awesome test suite with full coverage doesn't necessarily make your business any money, which doesn't mean that you still get paid to, to write that awesome test suite. I totally agree with that. But I had an interesting experience when I was working on the app that I'm working on now, where I got kind of like overwhelmed and stuck as I was trying to create my sort of application domain model, figure everything out. And I'm not a TDD person at all. But I hired, had a couple of people help me, one from Test Double and one from ThoughtPot. And the main thing that these consultants did to sort of get me back on track was to put me back on the TDD rails. All right, let's figure out what our next step is. And so writing a test that says, I want X to do Y, and then making that test pass, turns out to be a really helpful thing. It's weird because I maybe I became like an anti-TDD zealot, and now I was reminded of how that can be really valuable and really helpful because, and maybe, I don't know, when you're doing pair programming and stuff, like it's just sort of a little bit more natural to say, write this test. Now we agree on what we're trying to accomplish and we agree the happy result would be, and then we can go to lunch. <laughs> and then you like make the test pass. It's actually really useful. So that was kind of like a funny thing that happened to me. Oh, one thing I wanted to say about BCR, if you do go down this path, this is a little trick. I feel like this should just be built in to VCR. I don't know if it is. I haven't looked at the repo lately. But I have a helper that like takes a block. And it's basically just a wrapper that says, VCR, use this cassette. So you have to name the cassette. And then travel to the time the cassette was originally recorded, or now. So the first time you run it, it'll travel to right now. And then the next time you run that test, it'll just automatically put you back. That's really the only thing that I found... That, that would help with like timestamps or like dates in there that you want to compare like, oh yeah, this, yeah, that does. If it's an OAuth flow and part of your OAuth response is like an expiration and you want to validate the expiration or whatever. Make sure it was like, like in the future and then it's well, mm-hmm. if I snapshotted this six months ago. So that's like a weird little trick I would use that I wish was like a little bit more widely used. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at yagni.fm and find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson.